Hello, everyone. Welcome to another bounty episode of the Day Zero podcast. I'm Spectre with me as Z. Today, we have a crypto bug in Java, a bad log for shelf fix by AWS, a struts RCE, and a few other topics sprinkled in there as well. So I guess we'll jump into our headlining topic, which is uh, psychic signatures, uh, which is a crypto bug with Java. And uh, I'll let Z take this one away. Yeah, and this one, I really had a sense of kind of deja vu when I first read. I'm like, didn't we cover this recently? And then I tried looking back in the main bug involving like zero that I was finding was zero login, which isn't quite this. So it's a zeroed out IV. Um, so anyway, we actually did cover this exact same issue, but in Python back in November. Um, so anyway, what is this issue? They go into a lot of explaining over what it impacts stuff. The core issue here is a crypto thing where two values, the R and S value, and this is part of ECDSA, um, the signature, you're going to, you know, you have the message you're signing, send back R and S. Um, uh, now I've got to think back to some of my old classes here on crypto, but um, effectively what ends up happening is it takes the uh, multiplicative inverse of S. Um, and multiplicative inverse not familiar it's like um it's not exactly this because we're working in like a set or modulo something but um like one over something basically the number you multiply something with to get back to one um if that doesn't make sense it doesn't it doesn't matter too much but what does matter is that the java multiplicative inverse function handled the case of what is the inverse of zero which if you did like one over zero, that's division by zero, which isn't defined, but it actually did return a value for that as just being zero, which is the same thing we saw in Python code. I, I've seen other libraries kind of do that. It's just easier just to return kind of a value there and give it a definition, even though that kind of breaks math uh, when you allow uh, zero. But um, they had that as an issue. And then... um. Ultimately, you end up having multiplication by zero um, when R is zero. Also, it's being used in other multiplication to determine the signature. Ultimately, what this works down to is when the signature just provided zeros for R and S, um, you'd end up having this multiplication by zero. Uh, you would end up having no errors. And what you'd get is zero equals zero. Uh, or a check for does zero equals zero, which of course it does. And therefore, basically... For any signature, uh, for, sorry, for any message value and any private key being used, um, providing R and S is zero would ultimately just resolve down to zero equals zero, which is a true statement. And it was an acceptable signature for everything in Java. So that's any auth system doing this, like JWTs being authenticated, checking the signature on them, uh, FIDO keys, so your like hardware multi-factor authentication tokens could be using that um, and checking the signature. Basically, everything that does signature checking uh, on ECDSA, which is one of the recommended options these days, is to use ECDSA elliptic curve uh, digital signature algorithm. Um yeah, basically a lot curve. of. Go Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, basically, a lot of things are using this, and this is the built into the language functionality, um, where it's where I mean, effectively, you can provide zeros as the value and get back 
a valid or have it be treated as a valid signature. I kind of like the illustration they use of this psychic signature or psychic papers, um, which comes from Doctor Who, which I'll admit I haven't actually watched before. But I guess the idea is this doctor guy has a paper that when he shows it to somebody, they'll see whatever they kind of want to see or what they think they're seeing. Um, just the idea that you can prevent or present one thing and everybody just treats it as, yep, that's exactly what I want. That's literally the situation going on here. Um, like I said, it doesn't seem to be that, un I mean, it should be a less common issue. Um, I guess jumping back slightly, I will also say that RNS values are supposed to actually also have a bound check on them where it's between one and the order of the elliptic curve. Basically, it's between one and some number greater than one. Uh, the Java implementation also did not perform that check, which then meant by providing the zeros, you end up in the multiplicative inverse situation I mentioned earlier, and you end up in this multiplication by zero thing going on. Um, so had they performed that check, which I believe is where they patched this was in performing that bound check, um, had they performed that, you wouldn't have had this issue. I think I, or, I I think I went into this one a little bit, like into kind of some of the math a little bit more when we talked about this in the Python library. Uh, so I'm just linking to that. That'll be in the show notes. But I think the core issue here, um, one, if you're ever looking at ECDSA implementation, keep this one in mind because it seems like it's popping up multiple times. Uh, like I said, we just covered this in November in one of the more popular Python libraries, uh, Stark, what was it, Stark Banks, I think. Um, you know, several million downloads, so like popular library. And now it's in Java. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw this elsewhere, too. Seems like it's, like I said, seems like it's popping up a lot. I'm not too sure what the root of that popping up is, but uh, worth keeping in mind. Well, I think it's just because of the complexity, and this was something I was I was going to talk about quickly, was the fact that ECDSA is it's in a weird boat where it's both recommended in a lot of places, I think because it's efficient, and because if it's implemented correctly, it's fairly secure. Um, the problem that seems to happen with ECDSA is almost nobody can seem to implement it correctly. Um, there's been so many crypto failures over the years of just bad implementation when it comes to ECDSA. So it's not too surprising that so many, or that we're seeing this bug pop up multiple times where like, it's not necessarily clear or immediately intuitive that you would have to validate these values like this uh, or like why it's important because the math behind e ECDSA is just so complex relative to maybe let's say like AES or something. Um, not to say that AES is super easy, but it's a little bit easier to understand what's going on um, from a higher level, I think, than ECDSA is. So, I, I mean, yes, I think part of that is just probably the fact that it's like the elliptic curves. Most people just don't have an intuitive understanding of like elliptic curves and math on curves um, and all of that. Um, so maybe it's a little bit non-intuitive, but that's also part of the reason why, like, you shouldn't be implementing your own crypto and rather should leave it to, uh, hopefully more, well, <laughs> I, hopefully more professionals. I was going to call out, I don't believe Libsodium's vulnerable here. Um, that said, I haven't actually verified 
that personally. I did see that get mentioned as a popular library, so... Um, I mean, yeah, th there's complexity to it, but at the same time, leaving it to professionals is kind of part of the idea. Yeah, I mean, I hate to say that because we're seeing a case where, yeah, you did leave it to... Ideally, you know, the language should be providing a good implementation. Um, and in this case, they weren't. Yeah, that, that's that's the thing that kind of sucks here, is like any users that would be using the Java library for doing ECDSA verification, they kind of did the right thing. They didn't try to roll their own, and they're getting burned for it. So <laughs> that kind of sucks. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it happens, though, and I think your risk is still greater. Because, one, this is also very, like, wide. Everybody knows this now happened, and, you know, knows the patch. Oh, um, yeah. If you rolled it on your own, you'd have to be like, oh, are we vulnerable? Did we make this same mistake and have to go figure that out? Just a lot more overhead. Likelihood is, or more likely you've also introduced other bugs. So, I mean, yeah. I would still, you know, put my trust in the Java language over implementing it yourself. I, I don't think anybody's really thinking, like, I, like, I haven't seen any discussion where it's like, oh, no, Java was vulnerable, therefore, let's not even, uh, or let's implement our own crypto. I haven't seen that, and that is definitely not the thought that you should have here. It's a crazy bug. It comes, I, yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. It probably comes just from that lack of intuitive understanding over how ECDSA works, not recognizing the importance of these things. Um... Yeah, I mean, it sucks. It's a crazy vault. It's a cool vault because it does enable quite a bit just anywhere the signatures are being used, like very impactful, which is another kind of side discussion I want to bring up. They call out the CVSS score here. Um, Oracle is given the CVSS score of 7.5, assigning no impact to confidentiality or availability. Uh, we at Forge Rock graded this a perfect 10.0 due to the wide range of impacts. And that this kind of hits on something I've I've mentioned this before, but the idea that CVSS scores don't really capture everything about the vulnerability. They capture they do capture some information, but a lot of context is missing. Um, anything specific about the application is kind of missing. It's really just looking like CIA and just low or high for the or none. Um. But I do disagree with this idea of being like, well, this is a widely used library, therefore it's a 10 because it's used everywhere. Like, no, like as a vulnerability, uh, unchained with anything else, the vulnerability itself is or doesn't have the confidentiality availability aspects. Um, that said... Like, I get where they're coming from, but I do disagree with this idea of raising the score because it can be chained in all these other ways. That's kind of like where you see the WordPress super minor vulnerabilities getting those 10.0 CVSS scores because somebody's like, well, I mean, you can chain this and this and this and this. Um, it's, yeah, I just mentioned, yeah, CVS is just weird in general. Yeah, like, I get some use for it. Like, there, it, there are... It is a metric that you can use, but um, on a whole, like, I don't put a lot of stock in it. And I, I as, just disagree with bumping up the score here. As, as time goes on, I dislike CVSS more and more. Um, I just feel like it's 
it, it doesn't really mean anything, honestly. When I whenever I look at a CVE or a vulnerability and I see a CVSS score, I don't even look at it because it doesn't it doesn't really tell you very much. It strips out too much of the context. It's it's like it tries to boil it down to like a, a TLDR almost of how impactful it is, but it doesn't do a good job of it. So Yeah, I, don't know. I feel like I just don't like CVSS very much, personally. Yeah, I feel like part of that just comes with its age, like, you know, maybe twenty years ago where a lot of the issues were just kind of like the full exploit. And it's like, well, this act like, cause I do feel like, you know, measuring the CIA of something kind of makes sense when you have a full exploit in mind. And then it's like this results in like this complete thing, but that isn't how CVSS gets scored because it's just the individual vulnerability, not a chain. Um, and I feel like it almost makes more sense when you do have a chain, although I haven't really thought through that. So don't take that as my, like, fixed position on this one. Yeah, overall, like you said, um, kind of a cool issue. I guess not if you're somebody who's the victim of this issue and has to, uh, you know, patch your, patch your Java to uh, to get rid of the bug. But, yeah, I mean, ECDSA and anything to do with crypto is always fun to cover. Um, like I was saying with ECDSA, where it's so unintuitive, it feels kind of easy to have issues like this. And uh, like you kind of said towards the beginning of the topic, probably see variants of this uh, in other things in the future, too. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Looks at the, the key thing here that, see, well, I mean, beyond just not doing the balance check is that multiplicative inverse having a response or having a valid reply to zero. Seems like that can pop up in a lot more places um, than just here. Well, it's kind of an interesting problem. Like, this is just a problem in general with, like, computers and math, is that math has all these kind of insane concepts of, like, a, you know, divide by zero error is kind of the classic one, where it's like, you can kind of handle that in math, and but in a computer, it's kind of hard to express that, um, other than just crashing or something. Uh, so... Yeah, I mean, divide, divide by zero is just one of those interesting problems that's been around forever, and uh, this kind of was born from that a little bit, too. Yeah, and in fairness, like, you're not in this code, it wouldn't actually resolve to a proper division by zero, because that's not how the math actually works out to calculate these things. Um, it's It implies a division by zero, but the algorithm being followed to actually do the calculation wouldn't be doing a division by zero. Um, I think things will actually fault on actual division by zero. Like if you did a div instruction, oh yeah, zero, yeah, they'll they they'll fall on so. in Java. Um, yeah, yeah. So. That, I wasn't trying to say that. I was trying to say like these kinds of situations you can get into in mathematics are difficult to handle in yeah programming. So yeah, yeah. I mean working at a different layer for abstraction. All right, so we'll get into our next topic here, which is uh, a botched patch by AWS for the log for shell vulnerability from a few months back. Um, for those interested in that bug, we covered it on December 14th, I believe. Uh, as a quick TLDR and refresher, um, basically the log for shell or, or log for J bug was the fact that log for J2 would parse um, logging contents for expressions and such that could be evaluated, and that could be leveraged for RCE. Boiling it down a little bit, but like I said, you can you can check out that past episode for the coverage of that um, for more context. Uh, since Blog4j and you know Apache in general was so widespread, uh, it was a huge deal when it came out, and it still is. 
Um, and as such, AWS released some hot patching solutions for services to use um, in the form of like RPM packages, a daemon set for Kubernetes clusters, uh, and a set of OCI hooks called hot dog for bottle rocket hosts. Uh, the problem is, in order to patch uh, Java processes for hot fixing inside of containers, they try to invoke the container's Java binary to, they, they do it twice. They do it to retrieve the version and to inject the hot patch itself. Um, and when they did that, they would invoke the Java binary with elevated privileges. Um, it spawned with all Linux capabilities and with no isolation, like there was no sec comp going on or C groups isolation or anything like that. Um, and on top of that, there was no verification that the Java binary was actually Java. Like there was no signature checking or something to that degree. Um, so a malicious user could just install a fake Java inside of the container and it would get ran with these elevated permissions. So yeah, I mean, fairly straightforward privilege escalation. In an attempt to fix one bug, they introduced another one, you know, <laughs> kind of uh, yeah, this... tale as old as time. But this, I, I was talking about this on a Discord earlier when it got announced, and I kind of get the feeling like this is the type of thing that a developer's like, hey, let's use this cool, like, munchy patch, mon sorry, monkey patching technique um in order to fix this and like let's send that out to our clients and like they have this idea in mind and they just go and implement it without the thought of like how can this be attacked without going through that process or thinking about what if the java was actually malicious which is not an intuitive threat model like you're writing something to patch it like it's not intuitive to think like oh what if they're attacking me or perhaps they even wrote this without consideration of this wide range deployment you know there's a chance they wrote it like you know, so they could use it as like a utility or something for themselves when they're going in to do it. And then it's like somebody else picked it up. So there could be that sort of thing, but it does feel like the sort of it is a rather non-intuitive threat to need to consider. Like, of course, if you're writing this and you're scaling it out like this, it is a threat and it kind of leads to this really easy privilege escalation. But I did think it was interesting just because I could really I could see myself pretty much in this dev spot as being like. Let's do this cool technique to patch it. Not even thinking about the actual threats that are being introduced. Yeah, so probably the most straightforward post of the uh, of the episode. Um, not too much to really talk about there, but like you said, it's kind of an interesting situation. So um, wanted to give it a quick cover. All right, so we'll get into our next topic here, which is a uh, post on bypassing Apple's corporate single sign-on. Um, this is on the rampadmin.apple.com domain. And post goes through a little bit of like the reconnaissance that they were doing, um, you know, trying to see which endpoints were protected. And they ended up discovering that all endpoints were protected by single sign on, uh, except for this one endpoint, which was, um, I think it was health check. Yeah, yeah health check. They health got a 200. OK, um, so from there, they they tried to see like, OK, what can we do with health check? Um, tried to see if they could do like some kind of path traversal. And um, they tried one of the more common path reversal payloads, which is like the dot dot semicolon slash. Um, and we've we've covered this kind of before because like the reason it's a good thing to try that is you could end up finding some kind of desync issue where the front end might end up stripping out that semicolon, but the back end won't or vice versa, uh, or the front end will just pass it along and the back end will normalize it. So you can end up finding some interesting desync issues with um, like a malformed path like that. And that's exactly what they ended up finding here. Um, the back end strips the semicolon and evaluates the path, but the front end doesn't. Um, so it kind of 
allows bypassing of any filters that they might have set up and it allows path traversal and thus they were able to get some information disclosure on the domain. Um, I think they said they were able to get, uh, yeah, these files gave me information about what systems exist, their name and associated IDs and description of the system. So, um, yeah, they were able to compromise some of the like other internal endpoints with it. Um, don't have too much information on like the background of why this works, but that's kind of the nature of, uh, like this kind of bounty research. Um, the researcher probably didn't have too much knowledge of the back end either. They just kind of checked it and it's like, Oh, it works. And then <laughs> tried to see how far they could take it from there. So, yeah, I mean, um, you do kind of hit yeah. on it, though. The, it's part of it comes down to the fact that this front end, like the SSO redirect, was something being handled at a generic level as part of like the reverse proxy in front of um, maybe part of load balancing, something like that. We're just checking do they have like most likely our most common way I'd see this implemented is using like a JWT or something similar in a cookie. Um, and then just looks, you have this cookie and is it valid? If it is, they like you through. If not, they send you off to their auth provider. Um, that's usually how I'd see something like this implemented. So then that gets implemented at the reverse proxy level in front of the actual applications. So the actual applications don't know or don't need to worry about the auth in the same way. They'll maybe get passed in like a header or, you know, some other way of checking who's authenticated. Uh, but basically it lets them offload all that off. And so in this case, when you have that desync and have their parsing the path, one sees it as going to the hell check, so it's okay and doesn't need off, and the other doesn't need to think about off, you end up in this situation where you can kind of jump th or navigate through the, um, I guess, the holes in the defense, kind of like, you know, Swiss cheese just lining up the layers or lining up the holes a bit. <laughs> That's a good analogy. I like that one. All right, so uh, we'll move on to our struts issue, which was uh, struts RCE, uh, exploiting an RCE in Apache struts, which I'll pass over to see. Yeah, and this one, it's fairly straightforward. The The core issue here is it's a double evaluation, um, specifically double OGNL evaluation. Effectively, uh, all that kind of means is, you know, imagine you have a templating language like... Uh, uh, well, whatever templating language, but you might write something. Um, uh, yeah, here's an example there where you'll just put some value in an attribute templating language. You tell like, yeah, fill this value. Um, and a double evaluation is where you have the value filled, filled in there. It fills in, like resolves it down to what it's supposed to be. And then it resolves what it resolved again. So basically doing it twice. And now if that's user controlled data. The user now controls what's what's being looked up rather than it being just like, oh, I just want their username there. I didn't want this whatever other evaluation. So in a templating language, maybe that's maybe that's damaging because you can include a variable that you didn't expect to be included. Um with OGNL, this gets a little bit more interesting. Um effectively, uh what is OGNL now? It's I I forget what it stands for. I think it is somewhere in here, but it's a very expressive little language here that's used within like Apache Commons a lot. Um, yeah, it's um object. Yeah, it's object graph navigation language. Yeah, Just I want. <laughs> I had in my mind open graph, but I'm like, no, that that I'm pretty sure that's not right. Um, but yeah, basically, um, it's very expressive, and you can gain RC just from your expressions. Uh, so having a double evaluation. What happened here for the double evaluation? is 
in a lot of cases, you'd have kind of the name parameter, and then it would check, um, I guess they kind of have, they have part of the code here. Uh, you'd have the name parameter that could have a variable in it or whatever expression you want in it. Um, and then later on, it ends up checking, like, is there a value parameter? If there isn't a value, then it actually assigns the name value to um, whatever the name was, just duplicates it. Uh, and that's where you end up with this double, ev double evaluation of it, because that name gets evaluated. And then later on, it goes and it's like, oh, this looks like another expression. So let's evaluate it again when you don't have a value. Uh, and it really is like that simple. Just if you don't have a value in some of these uh, UI bean components, it'll try and fill in the value with the name and evaluate it again. Um, there's multiple components that actually do this. But uh, the post itself does also deal with getting out of like the sandbox they're effectively in within the OGNL sandbox rules and some of the limitations. I mean, you can make certain calls, certain method calls, but there are restrictions. They go into bypassing that, which I'm not going to, that feels a little bit too specific to cover here, but, um, uh, because that's going to be specific to that sandbox. But I think the general idea there of double evaluation, looking for those edge cases of, um, Basically somewhere where it's, I guess, reusing the name in this case, um, trying to fill in a default value with a dynamic value that I'm not sure if that's maybe the best way to summarize it. Uh, but in my head, like that's kind of the, the key thing that I'd maybe, that would maybe catch my attention is when you have, when you basically have a filling in that dynamic value for value in this case, which makes it more confusing to explain. When you have that second fill-in of it, uh, when you leave it out, when it gives it a default value, and it's not just like a fix, like empty string, but actually using this more dynamic thing. Like, that's just, it's introducing this extra bit of complexity that maybe needs to be there, maybe doesn't, but somewhere that bugs can definitely be introduced, especially when it comes to templating stuff. Or in this case, the OGNL expressions. Yeah, I feel like we've covered double evaluation a few times before though i think it's been a little while because i can't recall like a specific topic recently that we talked about it but um yeah it's one of those more interesting issues that you don't see as often but uh yeah it's depending on spot. the context like, and in this case like with ognl yeah that can be pretty impactful like in this case um in order to spot like i I feel like you might spot this a little bit more quickly doing uh, dynamic versus or like dynamic analysis versus code analysis. Um, I just kind of called out what I look for in code, but I mean, it can be a little bit tricky, especially in this case where it won't always evaluate it. It will sometimes give you the right value without doing another evaluation. It needs to look like an expression in order to get evaluated again. I don't know. I do feel like this one could have been caught pretty easily, though, with dynamic, at least from what I'm reading here. Perhaps there's something a little bit more complex to it. Um, although I guess it does require that you end up in that name field specifically, which may or may not be super common. But um, yeah, I, we I, have I kind of agree, though. I think it could be easier to find on the dynamic side than like static you know, source code review or whatever. Yeah, it's one of those things. You just toss in an, uh, an expression and see if it gets evaluated, and that's your test case. Uh, like, that's kind of an easier way of spotting it. Yeah. 
All right, so we'll get into our last exploit topic here, which is a Project Zero report on Qualcomm's Blue Z Bluetooth stack. And it's a fairly high-level report as far as Project Zero stuff typically goes. Uh, we don't get to cover them on the Bounty episode too often, so uh, it's cool to be able to do so today. The issue here is simply the fact that when Blue Z identifies and associates controllers with stored link keys, um, it uses a device-provided ad address. And it doesn't use any other like secret or information that can't be spoofed. So a malicious device can imposter the built-in Bluetooth controller, you know, set its address to to match that of the, the internal Bluetooth controller, um, and then perform a physical attack to steal the Bluetooth link key, um, which is pretty impactful because, as Jan Horn points out in this report, um, not only can these keys be used to allow impersonation of both sides of the pairing, but it also permits. Um, decrypting sniffed Bluetooth radio traffic, which can then compromise all previous and future communications that might have been captured um, between a victim device pairing. So it's kind of got this interesting impact where uh, you can compromise things in the past and going into the future as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, fairly straightforward, especially when you're talking about Project Zero reports. Um, there is also a few bonus issues towards the bottom of the post, which I won't really get into because they're memory corruption. Um, but there's also a use after free and double free that they mentioned there. Um, and they they didn't really investigate it too much because they weren't really looking for memory corruption, I don't think. They just kind of noticed it when uh, they tried the POC for the original issue, and they found they were triggering in a sand crash on, uh, on the Pixelbook and Linux laptops. So <laughs> they just kind of stumbled into it, it seems. But... Um, yeah, the original issue is just the fact that devices can can spoof their own Bluetooth address, and there's no consideration for that uh, by by Bluezy. Yeah, and I kind of thought this was worth mentioning on the episode. Not so much because I expect a lot of bounty hunters to jump to looking at Bluezy. One, I don't even think there was a bounty here, but um, just because I I feel like a lot of bounty hunters do overlook or maybe focus on the web stuff and not look at the desktop applications and stuff, which a lot of bounty programs do have some desktop applications. Not a ton, but like th there is a good number that at least offers something there on the desktop. And these application level issues where you know, this is a fairly straightforward issue that you could go and look for. Sure, maybe not this specific one, but this idea of just like you self-report your identifier and it trusts it is a very common issue across any type of application. Um, and yeah, it exists here and had a rather impactful thing with the Bluetooth controller. On another system, maybe maybe it would be different um, in terms of that impact, but I did think it was at least worth calling out. Just you know, keep it in mind as you're looking for issues or looking at targets, because I do feel like these sorts of desktop application layer issues um, tend to get just overlooked by a lot of hunters who focus just on getting the web, getting those things that can be automated really easily. At, at least that's my perspective on it. I don't actually do, as I've said many times, a lot of bounty hunting myself. I just hang out in a couple communities of it. All right, cool. So uh, before we wrap up the episodes, I believe you have a shout out and then uh, we'll wrap it up. Yeah, just the one shout out here, just uh, Gareth Hayes at New XSS Vectors. I feel like we've actually maybe covered the new vector that they added, where somebody used this transition end to get the alert, uh, and just putting the style in there, so not requiring enough, uh, control of any style, but having in your 
uh, payload. They also have a thing here with SVG. I just wanted to shout it out. Um, if you're interested in that stuff and the excess stuff, take a look at it. It's just a little bit of an update out from Portswigger. Yeah, Portswigger has always been kind of a good place to look for like references and getting some quick reading on on some of the more like XSS type stuff and some of the interesting ways to abuse it. So, and I mean yeah. they they do good research all around. Yeah, for sure. All right, so um, that said, that's everything that we have for the episode today. As always, thanks goes out to everyone who tuned in. VOD will be up on YouTube, Spotify, and other platforms tomorrow. Uh, remember to check out our website or chat for uh, Twitter and Discord links and some of our other links there as well. And we'll be back for Binary Topics tomorrow, which is at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, and we'll hopefully see you then.